Drive Time 91.3 Always on the cutting edge Uh, usually it's a Middle East report, but uh, we're struggling to get hold of our guest at the moment. And uh, a breaking story right now is that South African Airways didn't know they had still had aeroplanes, but at least they are fetching some vaccines in Belgium. Some guilty European country, no doubt, um, sending us a few vials of uh, the good stuff, as it were. And uh, talking about... Uh, COVID vaccines. We have a letter here from Dr. Zweli Mckizi. Uh Fellow South Africans, it has almost been a year since South Africa's first case of COVID-19. Since then, the virus has wreaked havoc on our lives. Many of our brothers and sisters have lost their lives, while many are still fighting the disease every day. We have persevered through a tough year in 2020, and we all have hope that 2021 will be better because now we have a potent weapon to fight back. Vaccination is the best defense against serious illness and death from COVID-19. We are ready to start vac vaccinating our most valued healthcare workers as we promised. I, says Mr. Zuli Mukizi, urge healthcare workers and all South Africans to take the vaccine. It is possible to eliminate COVID-19, but we all have to choose vaccination. Remember, while we roll out vaccines, it is still important to wear your mask in public, practice social distancing, keep your hands and surfaces clean, and avoid large gatherings. Together, we can beat COVID-19. I choose vaccination, says the health minister. Okay, it's uh, time for Middle East Report in partnership with the London-based Middle East Monitor. And on the menu, United Nations accuses Israel of demolishing 89 Palestinian houses in the past two weeks. World Bank threatens to suspend Lebanon's COVID-19 vaccine as politicians roll up their arms. Tunisians demand implementation of an agreement reached between protesters and government to create jobs. Online for comment is Middle East Monitor journalist Jihan Alfara. Jihan, welcome. Uh, thank you, Shafi. And of course, if you want to get hold of Middle East Monitor, www.middleeastmonitor.com. More house demolitions by Israel. It just never stops. And this has got to be the worst manifestation of apartheid. And we know this very well because in South Africa, millions of people were displaced by exactly the same thing, their houses being demolished. Yeah. Um, as you said, it does not stop. And unfortunately, it, it is nothing new for the Palestinians. Uh, you know, you had the UN, uh, UN office, the OCHA, the, um, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They published a report this week um, highlighting uh, this latest pass of demolitions, which is basically uh, the demolition of 89 Palestinian-owned buildings in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem just in the last two weeks. And the report said that um, these demolitions left at least 146 people displaced, including 83 children. And... Uh, you know, the, this wave of demolition, the largest concentration of the structures that were demolished this time were um, in an area, in a village called Hamsat al-Baqa'a. Uh, it's in the north of the West Bank. And, um, you know, Israeli authorities basically tore down 37 buildings just in that area alone on the 3rd and the 8th of February. Um, 
And uh, now, actually, according to the UN report, uh, this area is uh, designated for Israeli military training. And for months now, Israel's been <laughs> so demolishing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, military training you know, is the it's, oldest, it's not oldest. Just, yeah. yeah, they always say military yeah. training. Whenever they take land, it's for military training. It's an old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, military training, and then you know you start seeing uh, settlements uh, prop up in the area. Um, but yeah, as I was saying, you know that area actually, even though the demolition was happening, you know most like you know had. 37 buildings just in February, but it's been months that they've been um, they've been demolishing uh, Palestinian structures in that area. Mm. Um, and in fact, uh, earlier on this month, um, the humanitarian coordinator for uh, the occupied territories, um, uh, Lynn Hastings, she warned that Israel's demolition um, in Hamza raises the risk of forcible transfer, which, as we know, you know, it contravenes international law. And she actually did visited the area and she described her visit um, to the village and, you know, what she witnessed, the demolitions, the confiscation of the tents and the food, the water tanks, the belongings of the Palestinian residents at the hands of Israeli forces. And, of course, the pretext for these demolitions was the lack of building permits. But, you know, that has literally been Israel's policy for decades now. As you said, that was the same thing for South Africa. You know, Israelis use these demolitions as a means of making space for more Israeli settlements um, and to expand their control over Palestinian land, um, you know, while clearing out and discouraging Palestinians from living in these areas, especially Area C, uh, which makes up about 60, 60% of the occupied West Bank. And um, that area is entirely under Israeli military and administrative control. And so, obviously, they need the justifications to carry out these demolitions. And apart from the demolitions that, you know, they carry out as a punitive measure, which, again, is a violation of international law and essentially a form of collective punishment where, you know, they destroy the property of the families of Palestinians um, that are accused of uh, perpetrating attacks against Israelis or suspected of involvement in attacks. But we also have this pretext of unlicensed building. But, you know, looking back to the very outset of the occupation in, in 1967, you'll see that Israeli authorities have established a planning and construction policy that heavily restricts the construction by Palestinians. Um, and, at, and at the same time, they allow and facilitate Israeli settlements uh, to expand and build and many Palestinians who live in, in the area, in Area C, they can't even dream of obtaining a building permit. And obviously, this leaves all of these structures um, subject to demolition orders on the grounds that, you know, they were being built illegally, even though many of them actually predate the occupation. Um, but, yeah, and, and back to these demolitions of the past two weeks, you know, apart from Hamza, uh, there were seven buildings confiscated in southern Hebron as well, um, you know, and that had effect on the lives of many people and, who lived there and then occupied East Jerusalem as well. You know, the owners of four buildings were forced to demolish their own property. Can you believe that? Like, you no, know, that's ultimate humiliation. avoid the fines by the Israelis because... They, you know, if they end up having to demolish your structure, they will charge you for their trouble. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, the, let's sort of uh, be just beat, um, get down to the heart of it. 
It's ethnic cleansing. Yeah. That's all it is. And, yes, um, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Bottom line, ethnic cleansing. But, but let's move on to the World Bank. I think justifiably yeah. threatened to suspend COVID vaccine funding in Lebanon because the men, the fat men in suits, uh, in Parliament winding up their arms for injections when you've got health workers on the front lines in Beirut and Sidon and other places not getting anything. Yeah. It's not surprising at all. It's not surprising at all. And everybody saw this coming, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, not only did the West, uh, you know, the World Bank um, threaten to uh, suspend the funding uh, for the COVID vaccination drive in just its second week, um, but even the head of the National Vaccination Committee uh, has now said that he would resign. Um, and this was because 16 members of parliament tr- decided to jump the queue and get their shots without, you know, registering um, with the health ministry's official um, application. Um, And this action, uh, you know, should not be seen in isolation because it reflects the corruption and the favoritism that is rife in in Lebanon uh, today. And it's this kind of corruption, this kind of favoritism that actually contributed massively to the economic and financial crisis that Lebanon has been facing over the past few years. And it's, you know, the worst crisis in decades in Lebanon. And already there is a lot of frustration in Lebanon, just like, you know, in many areas that have been waiting, you know, impatiently for the vaccines to arrive because, you know, the slow pace of the vaccinations that happened in Lebanon, I mean, the country only received its first batch of the vaccine this month with aid from the World Bank. You know, the, the health sector already in Lebanon is struggling massively anyway, uh, you know, after the massive explosion in, in last summer in Beirut. Um, and most people are already expecting, like I said, these kinds of violations and favoritism by those in power, including the World Bank. You know, they said that already they said they would monitor the vaccination effort to ensure that the shots go to those who need it most. And as expected, you know, MPs started jumping the queue and the World Bank's regional director said actually um, that, um, that that was a breach, um, uh, you know, it breached the national plan that was agreed and that upon confirmation of this violation, they may suspend financing. And he obviously appealed to everybody to register and just wait their turn regardless of their position. But we'll see if the of these um, warnings will be heeded. I mean, as I said, that this kind of action should not be seen in isolation. I mean, just last week, actually, um, the judge that was leading the investigation into the Beirut blast, um, into the port blast, he was dismissed, Fadi Sawan. He was dismissed after a request was filed by two former ministers that he's charged with negligence. He's charged... Uh, you know, three ex-ministers and even the caretaker prime minister Hassan Diab would negligence, but several politicians actually criticized him saying he was selective and that he was overstepping his powers. Um, and now a new judge has been appointed. And understandably, the Lebanese people are very angry and concerned after this kind of dismissal. You know, the victims and their families have been calling for those in power to be held to account on the one hand. And then now you have these kinds of steps that derail such efforts to, you know, find justice. And you've got all these political leaders trying to stop the investigation just to shield themselves and, you know, others in power from any fallout or responsibility. Um, So it's kind of sad. It's, It's all of these kinds of actions, whether it's jumping the queue for vaccines or 
or serious, you know, acts like that that would uh, sort of, you know, derail the course of justice for, you know, you had 200 people that died from the explosion and more than, you know, a quarter of a million people that were left homeless. Um, it's just, uh, surely justice needs to be delivered and Lebanon needs to get its act together because, because I feel like the country is literally falling apart and a lot of people feel the same way. Yeah, I think it's high time that all the warlords that put on suits must be uh, uh, thrown out of the building. It's as simple as that, because um, this is the curse yeah. of Lebanese politics, uh, which I've followed very closely over the years, been there many times. And yeah. it's uh, warlords in suits, and they don't make very good uh, uh, leaders of a country. But let's You are certainly right. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to Tunisia, the, the El Kamur Agreement. Um, yeah. Unhappiness there in, in eastern, southeastern Tunisia? Yeah, so, you know, Tatooine in southeastern Tunisia, the area is rich, rich in oil. And um, yesterday there was a general strike that was announced um, in order to pressure the government to implement this Al Komor agreement, which was reached um, a few months ago in November after about a month of negotiations between the government and the Ilkhamor protesters, who first, when they first came out, uh, you know, a few months, few years ago now, in 2017, demanding the creation of job opportunities in the area. Uh, you know, the oil fields in the area uh, where these protesters live and work contribute to, uh, you know, a big proportion of the country's oil production and the gas production as well. And the protesters on the strike now essentially want the government to implement all the terms of the November agreement, um, which includes, you know, integrating about 250 young locals into the oil companies that operate there and to also provide and facilitate funding uh, for a number of projects that would benefit the youth in uh, Al-Kamur. Um, and when it was first signed, you know, a few months ago, uh, the agreement, the protesters agreed to reopen the, the, you know, oil and gas pumping station, which was shut down um, as a result of the strikes and protests in exchange for the fulfillment of their demands, you know, increased employment and job opportunities and development of the area as a whole, as well as actually a realization of a previous agreement that was signed in 2017 with the previous government. So clearly, um, the people who live in the area, you know, the protesters, it's been years that, you know, they've been waiting for something to happen for improvement um, in the situation and, and, and their lives. And, uh, you know, the sitting coordinator yesterday, um, he said that the aim of the strike was not to, you know, disrupt the, uh, disrupt the public interest, but just to pressure the government to actually implement all of the provisions of the agreement. And earlier this month, um, you know, the Prime Minister came out, Hisham Mishashi, he said that the government was intending to keep its promises, even though there is a delay. So we we will see. I mean, obviously, unemployment is a big issue right now in Tunisia. And it's not just in um, El Kamur, you know, the issue of unemployment, the impact of the economic crisis um, is affecting all of Tunisians uh, across the country today. And, you know, we've been watching and following there's been a wave of protests you know since last month just after the um 10th anniversary of the revolution uh last month in january against you know they've been protesting against uh 
all of these economic challenges and the political challenges, which have just worsened um, because of the coronavirus pandemic. It's just things are getting worse and worse. And, you know, while Tunisia, as we talked about in the past, you know, their transition to democracy was relatively smooth and peaceful compared to the rest of the Arab Spring countries. But, um, you know, the, the this kind of instability with the economy uh, are very, very concerning for the people who live there. And, you know, it's just lack of social security, lack of job opportunities. I mean, yes, you have, on the one hand, the, the sort of new constitution, free elections, greater media freedoms, but people are still, you know, obviously looking to live comfortably and not be constantly worried about, you know, their jobs and whether, you know, their livelihoods, essentially. And, you know, it's actually the youth unemployment is, last year, it was the third worst in all of the MENA region, even though uh, Tunisia is not, you know, a war zone. It's the third worst in the MENA region after Libya and, and Palestine. Um, so, yeah, it's important that the government addresses these kinds of demands and, um address the, the massive economic and social issues that the country is facing and, and provide real and lasting solutions and maybe start here with the implementation of the agreement. Indeed. Uh, Jihan Al-Fara, we have to leave it there. Memo journalist. Of course, it's a Middle East report in partnership with the London-based Middle East Monitor. 3w's.middleeastmonitor.com gets you there. The stories we've been discussing today, the Twitter handle at Middle East MNT. Jihan, thanks.